mean, I'm worried about the survival of the discipline and and they're concerned about changing the name is too soon. Well, when is when is you know when is the right time? Welcome to Clinical Appraisal, a podcast about nursing science with a focus on methodology. I'm your host, Ian Lane. All opinions shared are my own, and none of this information constitutes medical or nursing advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. If you would like to make a donation in support of my efforts to continue this show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. If you would like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Today I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Jacqueline Fawcett. Jacqueline received her Bachelor of Science degree in nursing from Boston University in 1964, her Master of Arts degree in parent-child nursing with a minor in nursing education from NYU in 1970, and her PhD in nursing, also from NYU in 1976. Dr. Fawcett has been a nurse educator for more than 40 years. She's currently a professor in the Department of Nursing, College of Nursing and Health Sciences at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Previously, Jacqueline held faculty positions at the University of Connecticut and the University of Pennsylvania. For more than 35 years, Dr. Fawcett's program of research has focused on the Roy Adaptation Model-based studies of adaptation to life events. Her earlier program of research, starting with her doctoral dissertation, was based on Rogers' Science of Unitary Human Beings. Dr. Fawcett and her research team colleagues have received funding from the University of Connecticut Research Foundation, the University of Pennsylvania Research Foundation, NAACOG, the American Cancer Society, the National Center for Nursing Research, and the National Cancer Institute. Dr. Fawcett and colleagues have published reports of their research in numerous journal articles and book chapters. Dr. Fawcett is perhaps best known for her meta-theoretical work, which focuses on the nature and the structure of nursing knowledge. Dr. Fawcett's meta-theoretical work is published in many journal articles and book chapters, as well as in several of her books. Her most recent books are Applying Conceptual Models of Nursing, Research, Quality Improvement, and Practice, which was published in 2017, and co-edited with Sarah Beckman, The Newman Systems Model Celebrating Academic Practice Partnerships, also in 2017. Dr. Fawcett is a member of the Executive Board Nursing Archives Associates, Boston University Howard Gottlieb Archival Research Center. She also is a member of the Dean's Advisory Board of the Boston University School of Public Health. In addition, she is a member of the University of Connecticut School of Fine Arts Dean's Advisory Board. Also, in this episode, you will notice that there is a TV in the background at uh, Dr. Fawcett's residence, and this is because at the current moment, there is an unfolding crisis in the geopolitical space in Ukraine. And as that is developing, um, her partner is engrossed, and understandably so. And I am grateful that she took this moment to speak with me during a global crisis. Um, so if you hear that in the background, and it, if it disturbs the audio at all, I hope that you will be understanding of that fact. Enjoy this episode with Dr. Jacqueline Fawcett. Joining me today is Dr. Jacqueline Fawcett. 
She's an international leader in nursing theory and research. Jacqueline, for my listeners, most of them are nurses or in the profession. You really require no introduction. But for those people who might be less familiar with your work, can you give us a brief overview of who you are and what your core interests have been and what's kind of led you to where you are today? So um, I got my bachelor's degree from Boston University School of Nursing in 1964, when there was still a school of nursing at Boston University. That school closed in um, the mid to late 1980s, um, although we still have a very active alumni association. I then went on to earn a master's degree in parent-child nursing at New York University in 1970. And um, in 70, 1976, I earned my PhD in nursing also from New York University. And during the time of my master's and my um, PhD, I got very interested in theory and conceptual models of nursing in particular. And so my work um, has been, since my dissertation, guided by a conceptual model. I started my dissertation with Rogers, now known as Science of Unitary Human Beings, um, and then um, probably around 1978 or so, shortly after um, when I was starting my, my postdoctoral career, um, I was asked to write a paper about um, um, men and women's um, experiences of, of cesarean birth. And I had started doing some studies in that area um, using the adaptation model. So for the next almost 50 years now, I've been using the Roy adaptation model to guide my research, which has um, evolved over time from, from looking at um, husband and wife's um, physical and psychological symptoms during pregnancy and the postpartum to a, a broader view of adaptation to life events that includes studies by my faculty colleagues, um, colleagues in others, other universities and students. And um, we've developed several instruments to measure functional status, which is our major measure of our outcome measure of, um, of what we're doing. And, um, and then during my doctoral study, especially, although also during my master's, I, as I said, I got very interested in conceptual models of nursing. And then in my doctoral study, I was studying in, with Martha Rogers and with Margaret Newman, and I got very interested in theory development per se. And so as well as I've been doing research all along, um, I've also had like a sideline in theory development. And so my major interest now in, in the sort of the going toward the end of my active nursing career um, is that it's focused on the nature and structure of knowledge in nursing. And so I'm doing less empirical research um, and more theoretical work in books and articles and blogs for a website called nurseology.net. I appreciate you sharing that blog uh, site as well. We'll have to make sure we link to that. So yes, I really would like that because um, that's been going on since, um, let's see, we launched it in September of 2018. Hmm. And um, I'm part of the founding group um, of people who, who launched it. In fact, as we were thinking about doing this, um, we said, you know, we were doing emails and what are we going to call it? And I had gotten very interested in, in the name of our discipline and um, a student of one of my doctoral students had alerted me to um, some work I had done or, or I knew about from a long time ago and, um, and thinking about our discipline called nurseology rather than nursing. And we wrote a paper in 2015, I think it was published in Nursing Science Quarterly, um, 
And so I said, well, why don't we call our website Nurseology? And everybody said, that's a really good idea. So, so we're doing that and I'm campaigning wherever I, wherever I am to, um, to change the name of the discipline to Nurseology because as Peggy Chin has pointed out, nursing means slowly drinking a drink or breastfeeding. And I don't think that that's what we're necessarily all about. And so nurseology makes a lot more sense in the academic world. Um, it puts us on the same page, if you will, with the other ologies. Mm -hmm. um, which I think it's really important, if only for political reasons. Um, and, um, and it's interesting that there's been, in my experience, quite a bit of support by the general public. That's wonderful. It does connote something like a discipline-specific domain knowledge. Have you had pushback about that term? I mean, do people, from your experience in the profession, do they? Does it resonate? There, there's a fair amount of we don't want to change things among among people who I consider nurseologists, and and there's some concern about well, is everybody who's now considered a nurse a nurseologist? And my answer is yes. It's not confined to people who necessarily do theoretical work. It's everybody. And so the name nurse is no longer used as nurseologist, whether, whether you're a student or, um, you know, a practicing nurse or a faculty member or an almost retired nurseologist, whatever. So all of us are nurseologists. And, and when I, when I've been in clinical situations, my husband's been in the hospital a few times and, and I'll mention that, you know, like I'm a nurseologist and I have some cards from the nurseology.net website and, and the nurses are they're perhaps being polite to me, um, but they're saying, oh, that's interesting. And, um, you know, and gee, that makes me feel really good. So some, some people at least are very receptive to it, whether, whether they continue it, whether these people actually go and look on the website, I don't know, but there's, there's a certain amount of receptivity. And at times I've, um, you know, when, when there's like, when my husband's been hospitalized and there's rounds and, and I will join the rounds and introduce myself as, you know, I'm, I'm Dr. Jacqueline Fawcett and I'm a nurseologist. And the physicians don't fall apart at it. And that's very interesting. Um, it's very interesting. There was a 2015 paper where you tried to bring this kind of back into the mainstream. Um, yes. Where did it originate? Do you know the history of the term? You said in the beginning of this conversation as well that there is a history to it prior to? It was first used um, that I know about um, in the 1970s. And um, there were two nurses who worked at the Veterans Administration Hospital in um, someplace on Long Island in New York. And they, they were nurseologists. And um, one of them, Josephine Patterson, had written about the word nurseology in, uh, I think, a 1971 publication in Nursing Research. Mm. And then Nancy Roper, um, who was a Scottish nurse, wrote, wrote about nurseology in 1976 or thereabouts um, in the first, the first volume of the Journal of Advanced Nursing. And um, she's, uh, she was one of the, the authors of the Roper-Logan-Tierney model of nursing based on activities of living. And, um, and um, so Alison Tierney was the, the third author of that model. And I, I know her from 
being one of the editors for a time of the Journal of Advanced Nursing. And so I asked her why in the book they didn't use the term nursology. And her answer was that um, at that time in the United Kingdom, academic nursology was, um, was just getting started. You know, they had gone from the diploma school type of, of education for nurseologists to, to um, university education. And um, they were concerned that if they use the term, it would be too off-putting to too many nurseologists. That's interesting. I feel like, um, not to take us off topic, but the off-putting element is an empirical question. I, we could find that out if people actually feel that way. And from your experience, it seems like a lot of people like it. Um, so there, there might be this assumption that people don't, that it doesn't resonate, but it sounds like it actually might be something that people, that it really does resonate with people. I, I think it's, it's, I think it's mixed in terms of within, within our, within our discipline, mm. um, my experience, including some of my own students who will, and, and I report that in, in the 2015 article that, um, some, some people just think it's too soon, mm. but, you know? I mean, I'm worried about the survival of the discipline, and and they're concerned about changing the name is too soon. Well, when is when is you know when is the right time? If we're worried about we're, whether we're even going to survive, and we've had over a hundred years in the discipline, uh, developing the discipline in a professional capacity, you know, it's been a century. So, <laughs> um, in any case, that actually segues pretty nicely. Uh, well, actually, before we leave the topic of nursology per se, I kind of want to ask you as well, there is a sense among some academics that I respect that, and you actually wrote a 2017 paper referring to this, that medicine is kind of, it's a trade, it's a profession, um, but it's very much, a, it's a it's a technical art in a sense. And nursing to your uh, you know 2017 paper has an element that can be, I guess I'm thinking out loud because the way that I see biology, chemistry, physics is that there's a theory-laden approach beneath it. And I think what you're trying to do, and I think I, this is what I would like to kind of continue in my work, is predicate what we do in our practice in research that is theory-driven so that the discipline itself continues to grow. Does that make sense? Does that? How do you feel well, about that? Well, I, I think that all research that's done is based on theory. It's just that it's not explicit. So, so the results of of a, of a study are are a theory. I mean, that comprises a theory. So, you could say X is related to Y. That's a theory. I mean, maybe you know, like not a huge, um, you know, like grandiose theory, but but it's a nice, concise. You know, X is related to Y. It's a model. So physical energy is related to functional status. That can be a theory all by itself. It happens that we have a whole bunch of other correlates of, of functional status to make up the theory of, of correlates of functional status. But you can have just a, you can have something as simple as as one relation or one correlation or an intervention with one outcome. And so so when you start seeing the results of any study as theory, and that means then that that you were either generating a new theory or testing a theory starting out that that it changes 
the way we look at things and it, change, it means that we're always we're always using theory the problem among nurses i think nurseologists i think and probably lots of other people is they're not always aware of what the theory is we don't for example in in the curriculum of most schools start out with nurse, nurseology 101 mm. and and it's all about what what the knowledge of the discipline is whereas in psychology and biology and sociology and all the other ologies and other areas that that are studied in the university um you start out the, that 101 course is always about what's the knowledge of the discipline and and we don't do that and and that's problematic i see that's that's exceedingly problematic and then we just go along and I, I say, with all due respect to my colleagues, um, I say to them that the curriculum for the undergraduate program where I am now is by and large the same curriculum I had in the 1960s in terms of focusing on specialties. And certainly the, the content is is different in the sense of there's been technological advances and, and the textbooks have more knowledge in them, although it's not always presented, it's not usually presented as theory. And so I see that as very problematic when, when there's conceptual models of nurseology that can easily guide a curriculum and change the way you look at things entirely and be much more in, I think, much more in keeping with what people's experiences of wellness and illness are. I couldn't agree more. In fact, one of the things that I talk with peers who disagree with me about, and there are a number of them, I would say the potentially the majority of my peers don't understand the the importance of theory i think partly because they don't realize what you had already alluded to which is we all have i forget which philosopher said this but we all have metaphysical presuppositions we all have uh, something guiding us we just don't always have them articulated but we have some very beautifully articulated theory in nursing that's been developed from you know several brilliant thinkers that have risen to the top of our field over a hundred years and to brush that off as if it's not worth taking seriously just does such a disservice. But also, you know, if we don't keep that alive, I think this kind of goes back to your original point. If we don't keep that alive, what does the discipline become? Uh, you know, I want to give you a chance to respond to that. And then I think it ties into your notion of theoretical versus atheoretical thinking, which I also wanted to ask you about. So I see medicine as the trade because there's nothing... In, in medical school, the students don't take medicine 101. They take histology, anatomy, and physiology, pathophysiology, and um, organic chemistry, and all sorts of things. But they're not taking medicine. And then they go off in the third year or so and be medical students on clinical wards. And they're just sort of bungling along doing stuff that, that you know, I don't know how they know what they're doing. And you know, in terms of what they've learned in the curriculum, other than basing, you know, so, so what are the lab values? Well, that's essentially physiology and pathophysiology and, and maybe some histology. And, and so what's, where's the medicine in all of that? And as far as I know, there are no PhDs in medicine per se. That may not be accurate, but I don't know of any. And so what's the, so if physicians may choose to study for a PhD, but they study in some some well-known discipline like sociology or psychology or histology or whatever's 
And um, so, so, so therefore, given that a profession and a discipline are defined as having a, a distinctive body of knowledge, then the conclusion is that medicine has to be a trade. Now, it's an important trade. I think that trades are very important. I mean, I couldn't survive without um, my electrician, who also happens to be a heating and plumbing person. So I've got this, you know, three things all in one person who's a really great guy and really very competent. And there's no way in the world that I could manage to get through, you know, managing this house and, and living in Maine in the winter or even in the summer without this fellow. So I very much respect the trades and respect whatever knowledge they have, um, but it's a trade. And, and, um, and so I think, you know, a discipline I see is, is more you know, located in the academy and in the university. And, um, and then we have a special mission um, in nurseology to apply our knowledge, whereas a lot of the other ologies are devoted to discovery and dissemination of knowledge, we have to add the application or the utilization of the knowledge um, in service to people because society has, has mandated or you know given us the responsibility to use that knowledge to care for people who come to us. I was uh, smiling a moment ago when you were talking about uh you know, for example, a PhD in medicine, because uh, I just had dinner with a very insightful student colleague of mine yesterday. And it was funny because we actually talked about, I think this individual is trying to understand how nursing is a discipline, like what sorts of fundamental knowledge is contained within nursing, which we can talk about. And he sort of tried to relate it to um, getting other PhDs, like in biology and things. And I brought this up that medicine, you can get a PhD in biomedical sciences, but what you're really doing is focusing on, say, neurobiology or microbiology, and then you maybe think about how it might apply to the trade of medicine. And so then his question was, well, how does this, how is this not the same in nursing? And that's where, I mean, I kind of think about it in terms of if your goal is to study the human uh, response to disease, which is one conception, then maybe what you're doing is for example, researching somebody's lived experience of an illness um, mm -hmm. from one of these meta paradigms. So, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think that I think that um, conceptual models do guide what we do, and and what we do mostly is based on theory. So, um, one of the philosophers that you may have been thinking of is um, Karl Popper, who wrote that there's always a horizon of expectation, and I've translated it into a horizon of expectation is a conceptual model. That's what guides us. So my research, as I've mentioned, has been for many, many years guided by the Roy adaptation model. And then within that model, I derive um, theories. So the theory of correlates of functional status during pregnancy and the postpartum, for example. Hmm. I was going to ask you about that as well. I noticed that you've written papers on the Newman systems model. You've written papers using obviously the Roy adaptation model. Do you, you know, I know some psychologists, for example, who will use different lenses as if like they're kind of putting on a pair of glasses through which to look from a particular model. And then do you feel like it's like taking off and putting on different glasses, different lenses? Or do you think ultimately there's a thread that we could link through all of the different models and that there's like an underlying nursing theory that guides all of them? No, I think that they're distinctive, distinctive different models or lenses, different perspectives of way of looking at things. And I think it would be, 
um, not to our not to our interest, probably politically and practically, to say that there should be one you know, one conceptual model or, or mm -hmm. one particular way of looking at things. Um, because what happens is that then, so let's say we a whole bunch of us agree that this is the only way to look at, at nurseology and to look at people and to study. And then somebody else comes along and says, well, what about looking at it this way? And then if we happen to be in positions where we might have, I don't like to use the word power, but we might have some influence over people's careers, we can say, well, we don't agree with that and therefore you know, that's not nurseology for us, and so you can't be a nurseologist. Or if you're on the faculty, we're not going to give you tenure. Mm. And I'm sure that that has happened, not in nurseology. I mean, it probably has happened in some places, but I know when I was at Penn that it happened to somebody who was in the psychology department, that she wasn't doing the kind of, of psychological research that was was um, the, essentially the paradigm in that department, and she didn't get tenure. Her work was fabulous, wow. well published, but it wasn't. I think. I think the issue was it wasn't experimental psychology or some such thing. And so, so I don't want that to happen ever in our discipline. So I think that we're much better off when we have multiple different ways of looking at things, which I call conceptual models. And then the theories come from them. And there's just hundreds and hundreds or thousands of different theories, especially if you look at, at you know what you're doing, you're doing a particular intervention and you're expecting a certain outcome. And that's a theory. So so I think that, that to help to help nurseologists to understand about theory and not be you know not be turned off by it is to say, well tell me what you do and why do you do that? And how do you know how to do that? And and then the person would explain it and then you would say, well that's theory. So you're using theory all the time, and that's why I wrote that blog about the impossibility of thinking atheoretically, because people will say, well, I'm atheoretical. Well, that's impossible. It's impossible. I agree. I mean, if, I mean, if you cross the street, you look in, you know, you look hopefully in both, both directions before you cross the street, well, it, there's a theory that, that there's cars coming or there's vehicles coming or bicycles or whatever, or people, and you better make sure that you look both ways before you cross the street so that you'll be safe. I mean, I happen to know somebody who was in England and forgot about looking the opposite way, you know, in in the cross streets because of the people driving on the other side of the road, and, and she was hit and fortunately survived, but had, I think, a leg fracture or something awful like that. Mm. This conceptualization of people who think that they're thinking atheoretically, you know, one of the things that I'm, one of the things that concerns me is if, you know, 94% of the profession are practicing nurses at the bedside, whether APRNs or RNs, and if, if a large proportion of them think that they are atheoretical and what they're doing is an auspice of medicine, then what is nursing to their, to their mind? And I don't mean to speak for people. It seems to default to, well, we're just an arm of biomedicine. But that strikes me as a theory unto itself, first of all, and also strikes me as wrong. And so part of what I'm trying to do in my role as a student, and I'm, I'm a novice, I'm just trying to learn, but is also to kind of spark an interest in some of these ideas that are more nursing specific for my, my student colleagues um, and myself. The uh, other thing, you mentioned Popper, and I have a very 
large affinity for Popper's thoughts. And I know that there are some people who've kind of moved away from Popperian thinking in favor of some other um, kind of styles of philosophizing. But I think, you know, partly what a, a biologist would do with uh, Popper's ideas is say, well, we have our underlying theory, but it is in essence still falsifiable. Um, so I, I think you can probably get the sense I'm very passionate about bridging the, the so-called gap between where theory and practice and research kind of meet, or in this case, don't meet. What's your but current thinking on this? No, it's just, it's a, it's a perception that there's a gap. But if you think about what I said before, that you ask, pe- ask people, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And how do you know to do that? Then, then they, and then you say, well, that's theory. And then they understand it. So it's, it's a matter of not understanding what theory is in, in a very practical kind of way. I mean, you can get very lofty the way I do and very esoteric about you know, all of this and, and how it's all structured. But it, but it comes down to something as simple as saying, I'm doing this particular intervention. So, for example, um, my husband is continuing rehabilitation from a fracture of the proximal end of, of his femur some several months ago and right now we have a helper who's here in the afternoon and she's doing massage this afternoon so her theory and mine also is that the massage of his leg um which i'm quite sure he's having some muscle contractions and muscle spasms that the massage is going to help his is is going to reduce the muscle spasms and make him more comfortable and so I'll find out because she was doing this for the first time today. So, so when we're finished, I'll go and ask how, how his life feels. And I mean, that's, that's theory essentially in a very practical kind of way. And we could get very esoteric about, you know, what's, what are the, how does, how does massage work and how does it really reduce muscle spasms and relax people and so on. And you could get, get into the, you know, the, the why of it, if you will. And, and the, and the, you know the more formal theory, but for practical purposes, then you know then then this person knows that she's using theory. This ties in nicely with one of my questions for you. In I think it was two thousand one, uh, you wrote a paper with it looked like Gene Watson and a couple of others, um, where you talked about this inextricable link between theory practice like and so it sounds to me like you're saying that the gap is actually an illusion and what we really need to do to triangulate these things is actually just make our theories articulated does that sound correct yes and and to do yes that that is correct and and to do that in simple kinds of ways i've said before that you know ask people what you know what are you doing why are you doing it and how do you know how to do that and then tell them that this is theory. So and we can make, we can make it more formal. We can hook it up with a conceptual model so that they have a better idea of, of how things are guided. But basically, they're using theory all the time. Do you mind if I ask you then, for those nurses who say that their view of nursing is that it is just uh, another kind of branch of medicine that we are just sort of doing lower level medicine and that that is their theory what would you say to that person 
I would say that that's very unfortunate. And then how do you justify um, requesting certain recognition that goes with your responsibilities? And why would you call yourself a nurse? Why not a physician's assistant? Hmm. I ask that because it's um, it's a particularly salient question for like a, a number of my, um, I mean, we're all in my class, we're all a nurse practitioner oriented. Um, and a lot of my listeners are nurse practitioners or NP students or APRNs. And um, there's this, it seems to me this growing kind of trend where when you start to learn advanced practice, I think people f- forego the idea that they're actually advancing their original practice and it's um, that it's, they're learning something different, like altogether different. And it's certainly incorporating information from other disciplines like pathophysiology and pharmacology, but I still see it. And maybe this is just, I feel it um, myself that it's actually an expansion of what you were doing as an RN with additional information. But there are many people who will tell me actually, no, you're just, I'm just learning medicine. And I agree with you. It's just an unfortunate way to conceptualize what we do. I mean, like they're looking at it as tasks, but I mean, if, if you're a nurse practitioner and you look at like lab values, the way you're thinking, the way you're thinking about them as a nurseologist is that you're like, okay, so this is normal and this is, this isn't normal or whatever, but what, what is the effect of this on the person? on the person's life. Mm. I agree. I appreciate you allowing me to to the kind of devil's advocate thing because I know both of our biases are in this direction, but I'm trying to do, you know, justice to the other side. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, I think we just have to help people to understand. So tasks can be done by anybody. I mean, like we, we see... I mean, my husband was in rehab where medication was being given by, by LPNs, but there was no thought behind it. So, so he was having diarrhea for a while, and I noticed that he was still getting colase. So I went to the, the charge LPN, and I said, why is he still getting colase when he doesn't obviously need it? Right. Well, it's prescribed. <laughs> so I, I, I wrote on, on, on a piece of paper and taped it to his overbed table. No laxatives. I mean, I had to advocate. So there's, there's not a lot of thought behind things. Mm. I mean, that was a, you know, like a, an ex- extreme, but, but it seemed like, I mean, it was also very simple. I have uh, gotten through most of the original questions that I had for you, although I must admit I could probably talk to you for another two hours. But do you mind if I, as we come to the close, I want to ask, did we leave anything out that you want to make sure that my listeners hear? Is there anything I didn't ask that you would like to be able to say to other listening nurses or nursing students? Um, Perhaps... One of the things that, that's particularly of concern to me is that, that people will stay in, in jobs that are not not what they want them to be, that working conditions aren't what, what they ought to be. And I recently encountered uh, a nurseologist who had, had been working in a, in a major medical center in another state, and she, she became a travel nurse because she said that she went to, she went to school um, 
I guess in a, a diploma program at this hospital many years ago, and she said it was it was regarded as the very best hospital in the whole state, and that over time things had changed, and so so they were no longer consistent with the the previous values of there and the values that that she had taken on. So she left, and so she's a travel nurse, and and I the the moral of that story for me is is that one should go where where one is comfortable with working conditions and not put up with things. And so I have, you know, I've, I've almost all of my career, and I've been married for 57 years, almost all of my, my career and my time in my marriage has been um, being away from home a few days a week. So I taught, we lived in Connecticut. I taught in at Connecticut for a little while, but then I went to graduate school in New York. So I was in New York for a few days a week. Then. Um, um, I taught at the University of Connecticut again, and then I was recruited to the University of Pennsylvania, so I was in Philadelphia for a few days a week, and then we moved to Maine, and getting to Philadelphia from there was a little difficult, so I took a position at UMass Boston, and so I, I'm away, uh, before the pandemic, I was away a few days a week, and and so I, I've always gone where, where it's been the best for my career and the best for me. And, you know, and people say your husband allows you to do that. And we don't have that kind of a marriage. Um, I'm like, I do what is best for me and he does what's best for him. Sounds like a, an actual partnership. Yes, it is. And, and I, I know at times that, that I encounter students who say, well, I don't, you know, I really wish I could be here rather than there. And I say, and she, but I don't have a choice. And I say, we do have a choice. You've made a choice that you're going to stay where you are. So how are we going to help you to make that a good experience for you? And if it's if you just can't, then then your choice should be you know should be to leave and do something and do something different. Mm, absolutely. So my final questions really revolve around advice, and that was a nice segue into advice and wisdom. So. When you look back on your career, Jacqueline, what are you most proud of having done? And what's the legacy that you would like to leave behind? My publications. That, that, um, that, that what I wrote um, is there for everybody to read and to, to um, agree with or not agree with, both of which are fine, but to read what I've had, had to say what I've had to write. I think that's the most important thing for me. And what do you think is the best advice that you have for up and coming nurse academic or nurseologists um, that are interested in blazing a similar path, a unique path for them, but similar in some ways? Well, um, somebody said it once, I think, I can't remember now who the person was, but follow your bliss. Decide what you really want to do at a given time and do it. Just make it happen for you. It can happen. I mean, I'm a living example of that. I came from a family. I was the first person ever in my family to go to college. My brother and sister did not who were younger than me. I have one, two, three, four, five. Um, four of my five cousins went to college. I'm the only person in the family who has a PhD. I have one cousin who's an attorney. Um, and I've just done what what was the very best for me. And I was fortunate in many ways that I ended up marrying somebody right out of college that, um, that has been supportive of what I'm doing. 
That's wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this, Jacqueline. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you and an honor to learn from you. Well, thank you. It's, it's been an honor for me as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share this channel with your friends in healthcare and review the show on your favorite listening app. If you'd like to donate to support the show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. And if you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, or if I've reviewed a paper you are an author on and you would like to join me for an episode, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.